0: A new person, and that person being Jesus Christ, and you know, whether we want to uh, take that uh, re, um, that chance to sort of refocus our lives on the person of Jesus Christ and follow him more intentionally into the new year. So that's number one. Number two, today we're going to take a look at imagining a better future. And sometimes, you know, we get ourselves stuck in this rut, and we wonder, is this just the way life's going to be? And uh, with Jesus, I think we are given the opportunity to imagine a better future. And we're going to look at the story that was Sue just read for us uh, about uh, the wedding at Cana in Galilee and uh, Jesus turning water into wine. Talk about a better future. <laughs> water into wine. Okay. So to that end, let's pray. Lord, thanks for your love for us. Thank you for what you do in our lives. We thank you that you do always offer us a better chapter, a better future, and we pray that you will help us to hear this story, perhaps again for the first time, and that we may wonder about our own lives and how they can become an offering to the world. For we pray it in Christ's name, amen. So, New Year's Eve, sophomore year in high school, I had managed to get my parents to agree to let me have a New Year's Eve party at our house. And I must have caught them in a weak moment, but they agreed that I could have this New Year's Eve party at at our house. And and then they also agreed that they would lock themselves in their bedroom while I had this party. So this is, not that I didn't love my parents, but I was 16 and, you know, they just weren't going to really be a part of the party. Now, in my mind, this was, of course, going to be the party of all parties. Most of my friends had been invited, and they had accepted, and good food and music had been brought together. The stereo dial was appropriately placed on the highest volume. This was going to be the party, to end all parties. And on top of it, I had invited Julie Lepakis as my date. And, uh, and she had accepted. And Julie Lepakis was one of those women that was out of my leg, you know, just kind of out of my leg, but in a weak moment for her, she said yes. So uh, this was going to be just a great night. So about a half hour before the guests were to arrive, my father, God rest his soul, offered to build me a fire in the downstairs fireplace where we were going to have the party. What's a winter's party without a fire, he asked. And I was ambivalent about the idea, but I thought, well, what the heck, you know, give him something to do so he can go build a fire for me. So so downstairs, he went to build the fire while I took care of some things upstairs. About 10 minutes later, I smelled something. And a couple minutes later, I saw something. And it was smoke. So I raced to the door to the downstairs, opened it, and this black smoke starts billowing up the stairs. And I make my way down to the stairs coughing and wheezing and could see my father trying to douse this flame out with with some water and yelling to me, I forgot to open the flue. (laughs) So I ran for some more water and by that time we got the fire out, the whole house was filled with smoke and my teenage life was flashing in front of my eyes. (laughs) And so on this 10 degree Michigan night, we opened all the windows to the house to spray and spray lysol over the walls. And we put saran wrap on the food in order to keep the lysol and the smoke away from the food. Let me tell you if you want to impress your friends with a party, knock the temperature down to about 50 degrees in the house, spray lysol all over the place, and keep saran wrap on the food. Oh, they were impressed. <laughs> But in comes Julie Lepakis, and all my, all my worries seemed to dissipate. The party began. A half hour later, Julie Lepakis got a nosebleed, and she spent the next half hour walking around with her head up into this staring at the ceiling until she decided she'd better go home. So that was the only date I had with Julie Lepakis. Things did not get much better than that, and so I ended the night, I think, with my father watching Dick Clark and the ball drop with a little fire in the fireplace. So it was to this moment of teenage dread and disappointment that my mind turned when I was reading again the story about the wedding at Cana. It is likely the most famous or infamous wedding in history, at least the one most remembered. Remembered first for what went wrong, right? Every couple I marry, I tell them at least one thing will go wrong with their wedding, and if they can get their minds around that fact, then they will get too anxious when that wrong thing happens. And believe me, I have a long list of wrong things that can happen in a wedding, which gives me little comfort as we prepare for our daughter's wedding next month. <laughs> But in this first century Jewish wedding, the wine runs out. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details of what first century Jewish weddings look like, but suffice it to say, they beat a high school New Year's Eve party. These parties didn't last a few hours, they lasted a few days. And it was the expectation that the food and wine would keep coming throughout those days. No empty platters, no empty bottles. It was the code of decent hospitality. It was the sign of blessing upon a couple. Maybe you start with the expensive wine first when their palates are a little more sensitive and then slip in some of the cheap stuff later on. But wine you shall have upon request. So the wine runs out. Yeah, things will go wrong with a wedding, but this cannot be one of them. Shame, embarrassment, and disgrace begin to descend upon this poor family and this poor couple. And that's when Mother Mary goes to son Jesus and wonders if anything can be done. They have no wine, she says. They have no wine. But Jesus hesitates. There is this pregnant pause. Jesus used to be called on to give a prayer at these things. He's not asked to tend the bar. But it's more than just that. Jesus hesitates. He has this pregnant pause, perhaps because Jesus and the rest of us are trying to figure out what is the future going to hold? What could really happen here. And what we learn, and maybe what Jesus learns even in the moment, is that Jesus cannot help himself but to take the circumstances at hand and somehow make them into something that brings hope and encouragement and healing. Jesus can't help himself but to take the circumstances at hand and to bring about some hope, some encouragement, and some healing. So, what do we got, Jesus says? Well, we see we got some water and we, we got some jars. And we have a wine steward. L- let's see if we, let's put the water into the jars, and it filled up to the top. And and, and and let's see if we get that over to the wine steward. And let's see if we can kind of make some, some water out of, say, make some wine out of water. And so, sure enough, exactly what happens, Jesus takes the water, gets it put into the jars. The jars get taken over the steward. The steward tastes the water, which has become wine, blesses the wine. And now, all of a sudden, we got people walking around with full glasses and saying, whoa, this is some vintage. What year did you say this was? And the couple will say, that's the year it all went wrong. This is, we learn, what Jesus M.O. is, to take our present circumstances, either a fortune or misfortune, and try to make them into something that brings hope and encouragement and healing, to produce, shall we say, a fine vintage. You know, it won't be long before Jesus and his disciples look out and see a few thousand hungry souls. And Jesus tells the disciples to come up with a meal plan. And the disciples really don't know what he's talking about, so they commandeer this little boy's lunch, and they say, well, here's what we got. We got five loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? And Jesus takes the circumstances at hand and makes them into something that brings hope and encouragement and healing. Twelve baskets are left over. I call that a rich vintage. The woman comes to the well with her empty bucket and wounded past, and and Jesus takes the circumstances of her life and makes them into something of hope and encouragement and healing, and she goes back home to see the home folk, and the home folk say, Whoa, now there's a new vintage. The woman caught in adultery gets thrown in front of Jesus, surrounded by a bunch of angry, bloodthirsty men who managed not to be very angry with the man who was complicit in this adultery, that's another sermon. And Jesus takes the circumstances at hand and makes them into something of hope and encouragement and healing and tells the men, you know, let the one without sin be the first to cast the stone and says to the woman, you go and sin no more. A new vintage. It just seems to be the way that Jesus works. He takes the mixed ingredients of our lives, the unsorted circumstances, and he can't help himself but to take what we have and make it into some sort of rich vintage for the purposes of healing and encouragement. And isn't that that the way it often goes, that our our best opportunity to become agents of healing and encouragement in the world comes not from having gotten it all right, not from having, you know, the perfect elements, not from having the perfect resume, but from the winemaker who takes whatever conditions that prevail and makes them into a rich and unique vintage for us to share with the world. A college friend of mine was born with a cleft palate, and over the course of his childhood and young adulthood underwent well over 20 surgeries to little by little correct and repair his cranial facial issues. So, would it be a surprise or not a surprise to learn that what he gave his life over to after college was to research and teaching and clinical work as a university professor in the field of craniofacial issues and speech issues in children? Hmm, a rich vintage. Andrea Yeager was the youngest woman's tennis player to be seated at Wimbledon, She had risen up the ranks of professional tennis long before she made it even halfway through her teenage years, and with her rise came the loss of any semblance of childhood or family. Her dad was a stereotypical overbearing coach, and her friends, well, shall we say, she didn't really have any friends. Instead, she was forced into the pressures and competition that would cripple the strongest of adults. And before she even got to the end of her teenage years, she had grown bitter and disillusioned, and in the end, burned out. So would it be a surprise or not a surprise to learn that she took all of her tennis winnings and started a foundation and a camp for children with cancer? That she's given every day of her life since leaving tennis to be with children and to give them a little joy while they face the scariness of life. Hmm, a rich vintage. I remember reading an article in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago entitled Breakfast with St. Peter. And it was written by a man named Bob Brody, a New York man who had shown up for work one morning and was told that his job had been eliminated. And so there's the door. And after getting over the shock of being fired, he reached out to his network of associates and friends to start the process of finding a new job. And one friend, a man named Peter, with whom he had lost contact for years, had asked him to breakfast. And at breakfast, began to share from his own experience of losing and finding jobs, ideas on what what Bob could do. But it wasn't just one breakfast, it was many breakfasts and many coaching sessions and many emails and many phone calls from this man named peter and one breakfast peter showed up not looking himself and was forced to reveal his secret that all the while helping his friend bob he had been fighting his own battle against prostate cancer why said bob why all this time with me you got your Oh, he said, it takes one who needs encouragement to know how much someone else might need the same. Hmm. A rich vintage. Have you ever stopped to think that the events and circumstances of your particular life can be turned into the ingredients of a better and more meaningful future? Each one of us, with the help of this winemaker, has the potential, with whatever the circumstances have been or are, to become a rich vintage, to somehow imagine that all of what has happened and is happening to me right now are the ingredients for somebody else, somebody else's hope and healing. When George Carlin, the great and somewhat profane comedian, died 10 years ago, out in print came not only the story of his own life, but the stories of the lives that Carlin touched quietly. As with most comedians, his comedy was born out of a life of pain, right? Kicked out of summer camp, dropped out of high school, demoted in the Air Force, drug abuse, dying a thousand deaths in front of a thousand audiences. But from such circumstances came a brilliant comedian. So would it be a surprise or not a surprise to hear the story of Liz Mayel, who at the age of 15 wrote to 45 comedians seeking advice on how to be a comedian? She heard back from two. One wrote and told her to become an English major, and the other called George Carlin. He talked with her for a while, gave her some tips, A couple years later, they met in person, and Carlin opened up his laptop and showed her all the files in which he had stored his material. Every few months, they would talk on the phone, and Carlin became her biggest cheerleader. The last they talked was two days before he died. A rich, vintage, you know how a wine connoisseur will take a small pour of wine, you know, and hold it to the light and, and swirl it and sniff it and sip it and tell you all the flavors and hints that she detects, you know, a little oak, a little raspberry, a little apricot, a little pepper. And it's all been the result, right, of all these vintage elements, right? The rain and the soil and the storage and the bottling and the sun. I mean, you name it, it all goes into this wine. Well, don't you wonder if it isn't the case that the compendium of our lives gets poured into a wine glass, held up to the light and swirled and sniffed and sipped. And with it comes these hints of experience and circumstance, both past and present. And if we let it, if we let the Savior it not turn into this rich vintage, and folks will say, "Hmm, this is good." Uh, I detect, uh, I detect a, a brilliant piano recital in the fourth grade. I, I detect a failed New Year's Eve party in high school. I detected admission to the University of Florida. I detect a. A best friend who died of cancer. I detect the joys and strains of raising three children. I detect a, a difficult divorce. I detect an early health scare. I detect a gold watch after 30 years with the company. I detect seven grandchildren. But most of all, they'll say, I detect the winemaker. He always seems to make the best wine. Hints of hope, of encouragement, of healing. A most rich vintage. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all the circumstances of our lives and a lot of the things that we wouldn't hope for or plan for, both bad and good. And we know, Lord, that so many of these things just kind of happen to us, and, and yet you are the one who somehow is able to take all these things and make them into something. So we pray, Lord, that as we wonder about starting over, that you would help us to imagine our very unique lives being turned by you into something so rich so hopeful, so encouraging, so healing for a world that so badly needs a taste of good wine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.